Daddy promises. No, no. Daddy promises. I will take you to the store on Saturday to buy you that baseball glove. I promise. That child would know that her daddy loves her, and she believes his promise without a second thought. And sure enough, Saturday will come. And she spends the days going up to Saturday in anticipation. I'm going to get that baseball glove. It's going to be mine. The day arrives, and she's rewarded. The promise was kept by Daddy, and she now has a new baseball glove. We're going to look at promises and rewards or inheritances today as we continue our series on Galatians. We're looking at two passages. You heard them read. They're illustrations. Paul is explaining the importance of God's promise which came through Christ versus the law. And he says, let me give you a common example. Let me talk a little bit about a covenant, a contract, a will. And then as he goes a little further with some more verbiage to explain what he means, he goes, let me tell you a little bit about a child and how the child comes of age and becomes a son and gains an inheritance. So the two passages we're talking about are not very long, but they bring out in example form exactly what the Lord is trying to convey. Let's look at the first section. You can open your Bibles. It's Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. It's a God-initiated promise to Abraham through the Lord Jesus Christ, and it offers a wonderful relationship with God himself. The first thing that Paul tells us is that the promise can't be canceled or changed. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Another version translates it, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, there were covenants given in the Old Testament. We're familiar with contracts today. Once the, the deal is inked, as they say, it's done. The parties are obligated to perform according to what's been agreed to. A will might be another example. Once the person has decided in his or her last will and testament, this is going to happen at my death, then it will be carried out. And unless he changes it, nothing can be annulled. Once it's ratified, it can't be canceled, it can't be added to. That's the way society works. And Paul is just pulling that example in to explain what he's about to say. The promise, he says, was made by God alone and concerned Christ. Verse 16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What is he trying to say here? God gave Abraham two promises. The one that I seem to be most familiar with is, your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. You will have land that's been promised to you. 
That's what I think of when I think of the promises. And that indeed was among the promises that God gave to Abraham. But there was another promise about an individual, a particular offspring, a descendant, one person that as the generations went by culminated in him, and that's Jesus Christ. And it's through that person that the promise that God gives that he intended for all mankind comes through. Let me explain. When Abraham was asked to offer his son Isaac on the altar, he agreed to do it. Just before he was about to do the deed and execute his son, God stopped him. And then God said, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. Good. And, and, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So there are promises, but the one that Paul is talking about in verse 16 is the promise that culminates in Christ. One other point. God made the promise himself, and all Abraham had to do was accept it. Really cool. Let me explain. Back in the day, when these covenants or contracts were made, they did a very unusual thing. They took animals, and they killed the animals and cut them in half. They even included some birds as well, and they made a path between the animals that had been cut in half. Both parties to the contract walked down that path. Why? They did it as if to say, if I violate this agreement, my life is just like those animals. It'll be forfeit. That's what they did. Now, what did God do? Well, one day, as part of his promising to Abraham, he said, I want you to take some animals. They've got to be three years of age. There's got to be a heifer. There's got to be some, uh, a ram, a goat, and, and uh, a dove, and a young pigeon. Execute them. Kill them all. And then arrange them like we're going to do a covenant. Abraham knew what to do, so he laid them out that way in a path. But what happened next was really unique. A deep sleep fell upon Abraham. He's out cold. And God goes down the path himself. What a fantastic picture. Of course, you'd want to be Abraham at least watching from the sidelines, but he knew afterwards what had happened. The Lord walked between the animals and the birds himself to establish the covenant. And all Abraham had to do was believe. That's it. 
A guy I worked for years ago had a very important position at a bank in Virginia, and we got to talking and I ended up working for him. And it just seemed like he had just a great deal of favor for me. And it wasn't of me. I didn't do anything. I didn't know anything. But he seemed to help my career along. He just was favorably disposed to me. I think of that when I think of how God treated Abraham. Here was an idol worshiper, far away from where we think of Israel and where all the action spiritually is supposed to be. And God drew him, and God loved him, and God promised things to him, one right after the other. Why? Because Abraham was so good? No. God set his heart on Abraham. So Paul goes on. Verse 17. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. The promise is not set aside by the law. The promise came first. God loved Abraham. Abraham accepted by faith. Thank you. I love you too. But he didn't do anything in particular at that point. So why the law? The law is a good thing. We see the moral heart of God. But why was it instituted later? Well, sin had been corrupting men and women since the fall, since Adam and Eve. So God established a list of requirements that if broken, even in part, would cause a person to be under God's judgment. God established the law to show us we couldn't do it without him. We want to go to him for the promise and accept it by faith. If you talk to most people today, well, how are you doing as far as the law is concerned? Well, I've never murdered anybody. Good for you. I've been faithful to my wife. Hey, look at that girl over there. <laughs> the law came after the promise. The law was to identify sin and that sin was going to be judged in individuals. The law is to, pardon the expression, frustrate the life out of you. Earlier, Paul says in Galatians, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Everything, everything. If you are that good, and you need to read a little bit about what the Lord said about the sin of adultery and the sin of murder. But if you think you're that good, and you make it all the way, and you're an aged person, and you're just about to die, and you slip once, you're done. 
Paul argues here that since these promises were a covenant made by God with Abraham like a human document, they cannot be annulled or changed by the law. See the law as what it was intended to do. Verse 18 says, For if the inheritance depends upon the law, then it is no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Salvation and inheritance would come to individuals not because they kept the law, but because they accepted by faith the promise. The New Living Translation says, if, if, if obeying those laws could save us, then it is obvious that this would be a different way of gaining God's favor than Abraham's way, for he simply accepted God's promise. That's what he's saying. So we have the law and we have the promise. I like what John R.W. Stott wrote about the two. What is the difference between them, he writes. In the promise to Abraham, God said, I will, I will, I will. But in the law of Moses, God said, thou shalt, thou shalt not. The promise sets forth a religion of God, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth a religion of man, man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. The promise standing for the grace of God had only to be believed, but the law standing for the works of men had to be obeyed. The law and the promise, the freedom and beauty of the promise, God's initiative, God's plan, the free gift of salvation, as we say. If I was to announce that I had a very, very nice gift that I wanted to present to someone today, and I mentioned the name and you ran up and, oh, I can't wait, this is so, it's beautifully wrapped and it's so terrific, it's a gift. And I'll say, uh, that's $250, please. Wait a minute, I thought you said it was a gift. The difference. Now quickly, let's move on to the inheritance. This is the second section, four, one to seven. It discusses the bondage that comes with the law, and it is bondage, the sonship that comes with the promised in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is fabulous, and the blessing of our inheritance, which is unbelievable. Let's put the verses together. First two verses of Galatians 4. What I am saying, Paul writes, is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Well, we're not talking about covenants now. Paul's using another common example from life. The inheritance doesn't belong to the child, he says, in these circumstances. Well, what was a guardian? What was a trustee? Well, when a child who was the heir to the family in a Roman environment, when that child was an infant on up to a certain age, they had to be considered almost an heir in waiting. Their appearance would be almost like a slave because they owned nothing. They had nothing. They controlled nothing. They could make no decisions for the family. 
So what was done was two people, sometimes multiple, but in these two types, would be appointed. One would be a guardian who would look after the child while he was young, make sure his education is taken care of, make sure he gets to school okay, that type of thing, watching over him day by day. And the second was a trustee. That person would care for the financial affairs, money that was being held for that child. Could be a trusted slave or servant, but someone was taking care of the child. The child had to wait for the time in Roman law, set by his father for official sonship. We don't do that today, although we see it in the Jewish culture when there is a bar mitzvah or bas mitzvah, either one. A certain age is reached, and you hear the phrase, today, I am a man. It's official sonship, official heirship, if you will. In Rome, this event was usually marked on St. Patrick's Day. It's March 17th, I just threw in the St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> By a family celebration, which was called the Liberalia. Big day at the house. During the, this event, the, the father would formally acknowledge the son as his heir. He's come of age. He would receive a new grown-up toga, and he entered into adult responsibilities. There would even be a time for a boy or for a girl in a situation like this where they would offer up their toys or their dolls to the gods, destroying them. I know that's sad. <laughs> I, we still have our kids' toys in the attic, but anyway. <laughs> but if you think of what Paul said in that verse, when I became a man... I put away childish things. That's what he's referring to. Look at 3 through 5. So also, when we were children, we were enslavering under the basic principles of the law, of the world, sorry. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. The inheritance is granted to the redeemed son when that son reaches that particular age. What Paul is saying is, think about that example. And think of it like the child is the Jewish people. And the child is like a slave. There's an inheritance, but he doesn't have it. The right time set by the Father hasn't come yet. The child is in bondage. You as a people, anyone who are trying to obey the law, are in bondage. Because if you miss in one, the game is over. You're in bondage because you're going to be cursed no matter what you do. But in God's time, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the restrictions of the law. Just an interesting point here. You can run right past this very quickly. Verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent. The time had fully come. Did you ever wonder why Christ came then, during the Roman Empire? 
when the time had fully come. Well, what was going on at that time? Well, number one, the Jewish people had been in bondage, had been carried away captive to the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And because of that experience, they had forsaken idolatry. So they were open to hearing about God. During that time of captivity, they established places of worship because they didn't have a temple anymore until it was finally reconstructed. But those little places of worship were synagogues. And there were 150 of them spread throughout the known world at the time. These synagogues could be a place where the Messiah could be proclaimed. Alexander the Great had set Greek as the language throughout his empire. And when the Romans took over, Greek was spoken everywhere. So Paul could speak Greek and people could understand wherever he went. The Romans had established a peace that they call Pax Romana. The world was pretty calm at that time. And again, it allowed safe passage from place to place. And lastly, and I'm sure there are other reasons why the time had fully come, Rome was in the habit of building roads everywhere. And those roads were the roads that the missionaries traveled to reach the world. So in Paul, when he says, but when the time had fully come, and I jump right on to the next passage, but no, think about that. That's pretty cool. But the inheritance is granted to the redeemed son. God's purpose in giving the law was not to help men and women earn salvation, but to show that they couldn't keep the law and that they were doomed to God's ju judgment unless they were rescued. We use the word sometimes you need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from this treadmill of bondage of trying to keep the law and failing and trying again and failing and trying again and failing. The last section, six to seven. Great verses. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Man, that's revolutionary. The inheritance comes with the Holy Spirit and a father-son relationship based on the promise. We are no longer slaves obligated to keep the whole law or be condemned, but are sons and daughters in Christ and ready for God's inheritance in the saints. Wonderful. Oh, just a comment on the Abba Father. Have you ever used those words when you've prayed? Sometimes I do, especially if something serious is going on and you just feel like you really want to be close to him. The Life Application Commentary says, taken together, the two terms, Abba and Father, convey the delightful fearlessness of a little child with the honor of a respectable son, respectful son. How wonderful that we have that relationship. And what it says here is the Holy Spirit cries out, which means 
You're a son now. You're a daughter now. And he's crying out, Abba, Father. And you can do the same thing. Let me just offer a couple of challenges, three to be exact, coming out of what we've just looked at. Number one, we could use the law as a witness tool. We can use the law as a witness tool. Doing the best I can. I hope St. Peter lets me in. I've been pretty good. Certainly better than that neighbor of mine. The law is the way God works to show us you can't make it. I heard a preacher talk about... uh, a particular island off the coast of California, Catalina Island. There used to be an old song where a person wanted to go to that island, and in the song it was repeated in the chorus, 26 miles across the sea, Santa Catalina is waiting for me. 26 miles. But what did the preacher say? He said, you know what, if you line up on the beach, you get everybody who wants to jump to Catalina. You can get some who will just take a short start. Some a little more clever might go further back. But as far as you get a running start, you won't jump the 26 miles to Catalina. It just won't happen. It's a long boat ride or helicopter ride. The point is how we explain the gospel to someone who needs the Lord Jesus Christ is to explain the Ten Commandments. Are you familiar with those? Yes. Do you keep them all? Probably not. Really? Let me explain what comes with the Ten Commandments. See, when you sign up, like signing up for one of these cable packages, you get things that come with it, some things you don't want. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the preacher years ago, used John the Baptist to illustrate the outreach to those who are saved and should be with the law, begin with the law. He said, John the Baptist did not come to preach the gospel to his hearers. Hmm. He came to preach the law, but he did sufficiently indicate where they must go, for he said, there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John the Baptist was a preparatory ministry. His work was to prepare men's minds for Christ, and never is the heart of man so ready to receive Christ as when it is in a state of repentance. When it is weary of sin, then is it that Christ comes in and is welcomed by the soul, conscious of its guilt, tired of it, and longing to be rid of it. If you read John the Baptist, repent, For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of your sin. Begin with the law when you speak to someone. Try it. Oh, you don't have to quote it. But in other words, talk about the law. And talk about the relationship that you can have with the law, with the Lord, that's not based on the law. The person must realize they're trapped. And they are. The deck is stacked against them, if you will. So first, 
learning, first challenge is we can use the law as our witness tool. Pray about it. Try it. Number two, we should be motivated to obey the Lord as loving children. Remember when you were first dating the person who would become your husband or wife? Everything was glorious. You did so many wonderful things. Presents for no reason. Planning a special evening. Money was no object. You bought things. You cared for that person. Some of you remember that, I think. <laughs> there were good times. And hopefully you've continued at least some of them in the relationship. Do you love the Lord still? How long has it been since you trusted Christ as your Savior? Oh, it's been about 15 years now. Oh, it was two years ago. Oh, it's about 30 years ago. How do you feel about the Lord now? Do you still love him? Do you still feel like that's your Abba, Father? Arthur Pink writes about our love and the need to keep it strong. Every day that passes, the Christian should be more and more out of love with sin, with self, with the world, and more in love with God. We need to watch closely any abatement in our love. That is obviously one part of the duty inculcated in keep thy heart with all diligence. If we fail to do so, if we become careless and indifferent to the measure and strength of our love, then it will rapidly deteriorate. <coughs> God has promised you, through Jesus Christ, salvation. Many here have accepted that promise, are saved from the treadmill of the law and the sin. You're now sons and daughters of God. You have his infinite resources. You have his love. Keep your love for the Lord strong. Let it not be said of you, he has left his first love. And one other point and then we're done. We must take time to think about our inheritance. If Jerry Fiella told me that he had decided to leave his vast wealth to me. Not the family, just to me. He's going, no, honey, no, no, I, I did, never said that. But if he did, I might drive over to his house and make sure the car is okay. I might stop by his bank just to be sure that he's handling his affairs properly. Seriously, we have this inheritance, this unbelievable inheritance waiting for us. We enjoy a taste of it now, but we'll enjoy it all later on. John MacArthur speaks about that inheritance that awaits those who are the children of God, and he writes, because believers are God's children, they are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What an incomprehensible truth that by giving ourselves to Jesus Christ in faith, God gives us everything his son possesses. Is that fabulous? You have everything God has given Christ, you have Christ himself, and you have the Father who loves you. I can't close, but 
by mentioning one more thing, and that is if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You know what the law says. I think you could be honest with yourself that uh, it's not working. And the scary part is it won't work, and you'll just be cursed and condemned. I would invite you to turn, as John the Baptist said, to the one who is the Savior. Because Christ died on the cross. Why? He was guilty? He was a sinner? No. He was the only one who kept the whole law. But God put all of your sins, all of my sins, on him and punished him for it. That's not fair. No, it isn't. But it's good. I would invite you, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, renounce what you're doing to make up for it. Renounce the ritual. Renounce the the, the self-discipline you have. Because you keep failing. You know that. And when we bow and pray, just say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died to pay for my sin. And it's a promise. And so I'm just going to say thank you and receive you into my heart and life. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've learned today. We thank you that Paul got uh, pretty serious about what he was writing, that these ones were turning back on the promise and trying to substitute their own rules and regulations from the Jewish system to complete their salvation when that was a lie. Oh, Father, help us to honor you with our lives. Help us to be witnesses through the law and what we would explain to people. Help us to realize we're sons and daughters of our heavenly king. And help us, Father, to take time to even think about our inheritance and realize all that we have in Jesus Christ. And may we love you all the more and serve you all the more because of what you've done for us. And if any here know not Christ, may they be praying in their heart now. You died on the cross, Lord. You died and you took my punishment. I received the free gift just because you love me. And I take it by faith. Bless us in the remainder of this service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.